Welcome to Stories of Growth, a series of conversations with modern day business leaders who share their stories of growth and the lessons they've learned along the way. I'm William Rowe, founder and CEO of Protein. I've been helping businesses grow for over 20 years, and I've always been fascinated with the people behind these businesses, where they've come from, and what drives them forward. We, I think, in the creative class have to begin to define business models that a seasoned investor would invest in, because the reality is in the typical agency structure, from a lot of conversations, I know it's beginning to spit out like single-digit profit margins, and that didn't make sense to me. For this episode, I sit down with Jules Ehart, founder at The Factory, a creative capital studio who believe the traditional agency models are broken, and its manifesto for the digital age is a must-read for anybody who works in creative, media, or technology. This was recorded in our Protein Studios in Brooklyn. Great. So, I'd like to welcome Jules uh, to Stories of Growth. Hi. How are we doing? Good. How are you? Great. Uh, here in our studio in, uh, in, in Brooklyn, on Kent, with a very nice view of Manhattan. And, um, yeah, just great to hear what Jules has been up to. Um, I haven't seen him in a while. Uh, launched a new company. Um, launched a new manifesto of the digital age. Yeah. Um, and just really keen to yeah, hear his story. So maybe let's start with a little introduction for those who haven't heard of you, know of you, um, in terms of what you've been up to. Happy to do so. Um, so I, I've been in, in the kind of creative and digital space for, I think, 18 years or something like that, I guess nine, two decades. Um, my most recent uh, my most recent thing was was being part of Us Too, which is a, was a global kind of digital product studio, which which I got involved in about nine years ago, um, early on, and had a had a pretty fantastic journey going from a small studio in uh, in Shoreditch to a bigger studio in Shoreditch, and then kind of us expanding into uh, into, into other markets. So I left uh, London six years ago to help set up the New York studio and. Uh, that journey came to an end with us to early 2017. Um, so it's been a journey through kind of, for me, how digital has evolved. You know, I started out in, in web, web, basically web marketing, because it was web 1.0, 1.5. And then I had that journey through mobile, through user interface, UI, UX, digital product. And I've seen a lot and had a, had a kind of very privileged journey. And, uh, and Definitely coming to the U.S. has kind of given me a lot of perspective. And, and all of that's going gone into what I'm doing next, which is um, uh, a creative capital studio called Factory, um, which, is, which is basically condensing all the learnings of, of uh, the last decade in particular, uh, seeing what's worked and hasn't worked, and really trying to build the most ideal, um, idealized version of what I think one future path for the creative class could be in terms of studio models. So... Um, what is that model? The model I'm I'm pursuing is the creative capital model. So, I, how are we how are we defining creative capital? Creative capital is in essence exchanging creative services in return for equity. And as much as you might have venture capital, as uh, you know, a startup might um, you know employ venture capital. I, I, I'm trying to define and normalize the concept of creative capital. That, that what we do is the creative class, which for me encapsulates not just design, but encaps engineering, people who create code, people who create culture, people who help build companies and business models. Um, it's really trying to build a new currency through that. Basically because my reflection is being paid for time, sucks, and it's a pretty restrictive business model that locks, locks us all into. So I got a dual obsession. One is to build the studio, but another one is to help, help normalize a lot of these things that, that we in the creative class agencies and uh, different kinds of companies have been doing in many ways, but we haven't developed like a common language around it. And there's no common expectation of what that transaction is, doing work in return for equity with startups in particular. It's not normalized. It's always kind of categorized as like a, 
alternative revenue model and things like that. So my, my effort is to, you know, what I'd love to see is in, in five years that when you want to work with someone as a creative, that, that the, you know, alongside the usual suspects of pay me for time or pay me for delivering X, Y, Z, we can begin to get comfortable with other, other models. So in essence, it's creative capital is doing creative work in return for equity with early stage technology companies. But it could also be with enterprise as well. Okay. And just rewinding, that road to where you are now with Factory and the lessons that have influenced this new direction yeah. are encapsulated in your state of digital nation. Yeah. Um, manifesto? It, it, is, that, it, is that a suitable definition of it? it? Ish, yeah. I mean, Or just something a bit more brutally honest? Well, it's, in, it's interesting for me that, that, that these pieces have come to call State of the Digital Nation. They be, I think it began in 2013. So that's not your term? Although well, it is. <laughs> I, 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 it was like, so, you know, a quite grandiose, pious <laughs> term. But I had, to, I had to put a name on it. But, you, um, you put it in caps as in well. In caps, right? yeah. This, and, is, and now this is very important. Literally trademarked it now as well. Um, but um, Actually? Uh, yes, yeah, because yeah, because it, it sounds quite good, uh, and I'm I'm I've been in America too long now, so I, everything needs to be kind of kind of boxed off and protected. Yeah. But I, I think what happened was through the journey with us too, um, which was always focused on digital product work. So it was a, in some ways, not a repudiation, but if typical advertising or marketing work, you know, us too's focus was always digital products and services, and we were very very focused in that. Um, I say we from at the time. Um, and I saw a lot of stuff. I, I, I saw a lot of agencies. We, you know, we kind of saw in that era, you know, what is it? Who was it? it was RGA and, and AKQA rise up as interactive marketing agencies and stuff like that. So was, there was a lot of change happening. Um, but the chart we, the, the course we charted through through this kind of really booming industry was, was, was focused on digital products and services. And in that light, on my journey, I'd, I'd, you know, through meeting people, I'd, I'd see a lot of what was going on with uh, big companies and small, with clients and, and all kinds of people in the ecosystem. So I saw that, that you know, there was a risk in, 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 in straight up advertising and marketing for, for a variety of reasons. And I started writing that down. Uh, so in 2013, I did a, like a little piece, which is what's the uh, first truly great digital design studio. And then... I formalized that in 2016 when I wrote my first piece, which is State of the Digital Nation, which is like a 60-minute read. But I wasn't really trying to make a statement or a manifesto. It was literally me. Even though it sounds a lot like a manifesto. It, it does, yeah. <laughs> but it maybe it was a personal one. It, it was a way of me understanding the journey I'd been on and what I'd seen and bringing it all together and, and voicing basically, I think, what a lot of people were feeling and seeing. Um, and telling, so, telling some truths. Yeah, it, it was yeah, it was truth telling. Like the emperor's been naked for a pretty long time, uh, and the, the the beautiful thing about us too, I guess, the benefit of a modicum of success in a in a corner of the industry, uh, and it's something that, that Mills, one of the founders of us too, kind of definitely bestowed. You know, I learned from him. It's just that raw, brutal honesty coming from the right place is actually a really good thing. Um, so I think I think that's definitely in, in the spirit of those pieces. And then, and then I followed it up in 2018, which is basically again me opening and closing a chapter of my life. But in essence, those pieces are very brutal, as in raw and brutal, direct analysis of what's happening in the digital and creative space, the, the kind of the forces at work. Uh, and 2016 was about what does it mean for agencies, the agency model. And actually 2018, which I just, just wrote and, and, and shipped on a month ago, was about what does it mean for the individual and the creative class, like the atomic unit of the industry, which is basically a reflection of my journey because I'd left us too. And I was working at what I wanted to do next. So, and for those who haven't read it yet, as I'm sure they shall after, yeah. a brief summary of each one mm. in terms of its, its contents or its key takeaways. Yeah, so 2016 was definitely about um, observing the, the, the beginnings of the design industry being consumed, nose to tail, so to speak, which was, I think, Fjord started making... Uh, Accenture got uh, acquired by Fjord, and it kicked off this flurry of acquisitions uh, of lots of digital agencies. Accquired yeah, Accenture purchased Fjord, yeah. and, and and it began this flurry of acquisitions. And and what was clear was that at the time that was marketing agencies or mar ad marketing groups buying these agencies, so they had that in their mix, um, and that was beginning to 
affect affect you know the industry model. And, and so, so 2016 was about what's happening in terms of these acquisitions, what's really happening in advertising and marketing, um, and what does that what are what are paths for agencies through that? Um, how can you kind of cut a clear path uh, and a profitable path and a satisfying path? And, and 2016 was about that. And then for, you know, for us, its journey it was digital product work, but also it was about evolving the agency model itself, which was not just doing client service work, but also working on some of your own products. Of course, us had benefited from success in, in shipping Monument Valley. Uh, and then that, though, that money allowed us to, to also invest further in doing venture-based work, risk-based work which in essence was creative capital and delivering uh, creative services and returning in return for equity. So that was about advancing the studio model and what's possible. And I, I tried to showcase a lot of examples of, of other studios doing it, you know, um, and, uh, uh, you know, the model isn't new. I, you know, I certainly didn't invent it, but certainly a lot of, a lot of clever people have tried different variations of deploying creative capital. So, so that was 2016. Um, and just, trying to show that look, there's, there's lots of other ways of the creative class kind of apply, you know, working their trade. 2018 was more about, well, look, we're, we're a few years on and, and we've advanced a few years in this kind of battle between, you know, the consultancies and the ad holding groups. And in that time, the consultancies got in the game and they started buying all the creative shops out there. Uh, and that redrew the battle lines because now it wasn't it wasn't you trying to be an agency surviving this massive consolidation with ad holding groups. It was actually you were trying to build a business whilst uh, whilst uh, you know the likes of Accenture and McKinsey are purchasing and and building out their own capabilities, and ad holding groups are trying to get their shit together as well. So, um, and what you really the lens there was what does it mean for you as an individual? Uh, because I, I stepped out the agency game. I had the privilege of some time out. And I was working out what I wanted to do next. And it was like, it was, I wanted to stay with my tribe, which is a question I asked myself, which are the creative class, people who create things. But I didn't want to be in the typical agency game. So for me, it was exploring what that meant. Um, so, so 2018, or State of the Nation 2020, it's called, because it's future thinking, um, is more about, Let's let's get an update on the what's happening with the industry consolidation, what it means, which which I definitely love to go into. I think I think the agency model and the client service models in, is heading towards like an apocalypse of sorts. Um, and if the, if that is the case, then then what models can we in the creative class build? And for me, that pointed at venture and and my study of the startup studio space, which is more prominent in the U.S. Uh, and others led me down the path of venture and and. And How are we defining venture? So venture is, in essence, in, in my mind, in just... A, in an agency you yeah, know, landscape. Because that's a foreign term. It's, it's a foreign term. Yeah, I, I'd say f f within the agency construct, it means doing risk-reward-based risk work. I'm going to do some work with you. You're going to give me some equity uh, or alternative model. It could be licensing. It could be revenue share. And that might or might not pay off in the, next, in the coming years. Um, but you're talking about a relationship with the clients or a relationship with the workers? I, well, I, I think it's more, it, it, originally it's more relationship with the clients. What kind of opportunities can the, the agency, agency define for itself? Um, so venture-based work would be, you know, with us too, for example, it helped co-launch DICE, a mobile ticketing platform, and, and retained a pretty significant equity stake in that. And that might or might not pay off in the future. Um, that's risk-reward-based work. Um, and... The model, the model I'm really interested in now and pursuing is a funded model because I think the biggest restriction for a studio to do truly risk-based work, which might pay off in five to eight years, is, of course, that you're trying to manage, a, if you're lucky, three to six-month pipeline of business, which kind of descends into a, a kind of hazy fog with every month. Uh, and the only way to break through that, for us to get away from this kind of, I call it the prison island of being paid for time and all the restrictions it puts on us, restrictions, is to have a funded model. So we, we, I think, in the creative class have to begin to define business models that a seasoned investor would invest in because the reality is in the typical agency structure, from a lot of conversations, I know it's beginning to spit out like single-digit profit margins, and that didn't make sense to me. So for me, unless we can define new models uh, and uh, that a seasoned investor would invest in, then we're going to be stuck on that prison island, and that island is sinking. The future's hopeful, then. I think I'm, actually, I'm, I'm really excited about the future, actually. It's, it's kind of the paradox of the piece. It's like an analysis, but also I've never been more excited about 
because I th about it because I think we're heading into a period of chaos. That already there are some really big shops, and I guess they call them shops in the states, but really big agencies, hemorrhaging cash, hemorrhaging talent. A lot of talent is being you know leaving for tech companies. There's a purpose of crisis. The economics are not working out. Work's going in-house with, with big brands. You know, P&G, I think, slashed their $10 billion budget in half. Uh, um, lo lo there's lots of change in terms of work going in-house. There's more competition for the same work. People are offshoring to reduce their price point of delivery. That's cannibalizing the markets locally. Uh, so, so the industry is only heading one way, and, and therefore it can't sustain the rate of pay. It needs to retain talent. The talent doesn't want to hang around because they don't want to do 70-hour work weeks, uh, and they want work with more purpose. Uh, and now they have options in, in tech and other spaces. So I, there are lots of forces at play that mean that, m that the model, I think, is headed towards like a collapse. But what I'm excited about is what that means. It, it means that we do actually have to confront, uh, confront that, and we do have to, to build and define new models. And out of the chaos, like, like you know, which is the, the cycle of life and nature, out of that chaos, new things will, be, new things will come. So I'm actually very, very excited about the future because I think we're headed towards like a dramatically different marketplace in the coming years, and, and that that's that's what I'm focused on. Good. So, it, what's driving this? What are what are the drivers of this seismic change, which is obviously been well documented from Soros' exit from WPPs and the big groups yeah. know, really challenging? I mean, ultimately, they're bit. Who are they, and yeah. what is their business? But what what are the key drivers that are affecting that? And on a, on, on a macro level, and then on a on a on a, on a sort of individual level, as an as an entrepreneur, as a as a someone starting out in this world, you know, what can you do about it, or what can they do about it? If someone's listening to this and it's like, oh shit, this sounds like a disaster happening. Mm. What, what are the things that they should be reminded of to, to stay focused on? Um, I, think I think it's an interesting question. I think like, if you want to summarize what I, what I see going on in, in the market, I think it comes down to a breakdown of trust. And it's a breakdown of trust. Well, mul that's but, on multiple levels. Well, multiple that's, levels, that's yeah. Like, agency, agency, agency client, agency employees. You know, it, there's a breakdown of trust, and, and and yeah, you're right. It cascades through absolutely everything. Um, you know, do I, as a member of like a you know a big studio, trust that my agency leadership will chart the right course that makes it worth me hanging around for the next few years? Um, do I, as a client, trust my agency is giving me the right price and I'll get the right product out of them? Um, I think the starting point was that. And the funny thing is I've never worked in advertising or marketing. You know, my, my field has always been kind of tangential to it. Um, I respect the, the discipline of marketing. It's necessary. Um, but I also, and, but the funny thing is if you, if you, if you do read my pieces, there's, there's a bit of sport to it that I kind of, I limber up with some, you know, analysis of the advertising and marketing industry because it's, not because it's an easy target. Well, for me in 2016, it was it was like so clearly broken. If you look at Cannes and and, and how kind of self congratulatory it is, and what the work they're celebrating, how self referential it is, whilst Rome is burning, they're kind of quaffing rosé. Um, I think the, what used to be kind of sport for me in looking at that industry, I realised it dawned on me in the last last year that they or that industry has caused the collapse of agency client trust and and not. And, and that has cascaded through all the other relationships that brands have with agencies. That, that I think, if you if you look at the you know if you look at how advertising marketing is typically engaged, it's big idea led. Um, especially with larger agencies, they tend to over allocate talent to projects because that's how they make money because they get paid for time. And and definitely with the shift towards digital product, i.e. the, the the experience or the product is the marketing because utility is the only thing that will cut through the, the noise that's out there. Um, and I would say in terms of noise, there's less channels where consumers would, in, it would face marketing or advertising because everything's going through subscription services and uh, on demand. So you're, you're less exposed to it. So I, I say that in the future, only older, poorer people will be exposed to, will, will experience advertising. Um, because of that, I think that... Um, it's necessary for us to, fo to, focus on, to focus on product experiences because only utility is the only thing that will cut through. So 
with that with that shift in the market, the most of the advertising marketing industry, I think, didn't didn't really get their house together to deliver those services to their clients. Now they said they could do it, and what what happened in the last five six years was just a series of burnt bridges where. They'd pitch for work because they're very good at securing work, but they couldn't ultimately deliver on the, the deeper, more product, more complex work, which is involves design, but it also involves full-stack engineering, designing APIs and, and deeper design. And it's more complicated than doing kind of surface layer uh, marketing work or digital marketing work. That was the beginning of the breach of trust. And then I think then the background of, of overcharging, uh, overcharging clients, having teams that were too big and under-delivering, in advertising and marketing caused this breach that meant that giant brands began to say, well, look, we're not getting the value we want, uh, and actually maybe we should build these capabilities in-house, or maybe we should find alternatives. That eventually, I realized, has now caused real issues in the uh, what I like to think is the more dignified or rarefied field of product, where, where the IDOs and the US2s and a bunch of other people work. Um, because now this general, drive for value, which is completely justified, is affecting them. And, and they're being challenged on price and, and deliverables. Um, so what was sport for me looking at that industry is now caused, I think, a system, systemic collapse in the fundamental relationship between agencies and clients. And it goes, it goes both ways. You know, it, it, it's not, I think the, the industry, our side, so to speak, is culpable. But I think, I, think, I think brands are also culpable as well. And if you're, if you're Nike, then why the hell are you squeezing a 20-person studio, studio's rates down by 25% through procurement? Because you're, you're a multi-billion dollar organization, uh, and it doesn't make any sense. Like, of course, the, the, the procurement of design and, and creativity um, has helped commoditize it, and we've helped commoditize it by allowing our, allowing our deliverable to be charged in units of time. So it's very easily... You know, it's very easily comparable. Now, the net effect of that is the kind of the, the procurement of design and driving the price point down, which doesn't make any sense to me. But the net, the net, the net effect is we're 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 basically we're we're we're, we're crushing the creative industry. Now, where I and you and I are kind of earlier on in our careers, it was a fertile environment. You could have spare budget to make experiments. You could hire more people. You could try lots more side projects. But now, with, with price being squeezed, I think this is, this is causing a fundamental kind of challenge to the ecosystem in which we grew up, in which lots of experiments took place, in which creativity grew and the next generation of talent emerged. I think we have a real challenge to that ecosystem, um, which worries me a lot. And what does, it, what, what, what does that, the, product, the, the, kind of the procurement of design, uh, mean for the ecosystem? And what, what does the consolidation of design per se or creativity as it all gets snapped up by consultancies, what does it mean if, if it's all from the same source? Mm. Um, so those things worry me, for sure. And you talk about the next generation and recognizing, and this is an easy ride, but certainly our ride in terms of generational, and yeah. this is generational. And if we're setting this course, or this course is, has been set, yeah. that we are now experiencing, and to my point on that next generation coming through, you know, what are those more positive signals, steps, you know, businesses, approaches, you know, what is that world yeah. that they can grapple? Because, you know, well, the dots. Yeah. Communities that are, uh, are are nurturing the importance of freelance, yeah. creative culture, yeah. which, I you know, is, is step one, you know, of of joining communities. Yep. Step two is selling that service, which is a whole other conversation mm. in terms of in what quantifiable metric we choose or they choose. But I mean, how are you seeing that changing on a, again on a, on a more macro level for this next generation, rather than you know how they charge for their time? Yeah, I mean, I, to, to frame it in, in two layers, I, I, in terms of what this breakdown of trust or, or the, the potential collapse of the current system means, what does it mean for us in terms of options, not just the next generation? For me, it means that we who have the ability to do so, we go out and we start to define new paths and new business models, um, which, which, which almost 
Well, it, it let us escape the let us escape the chaos in some ways because I think unless we build these vessels and vehicles in which and, and new ways of doing business, we're going to be left we're going to be left to kind of in that in that storm. So that's what I think the options are. and I think there are lots of options for us to us to define these new models. So I'm really hopeful about that. What what which it, ones specifically? Well, I, I think I think. What the, the path I've chosen is focusing on venture. Like, how can we build funded models for creativity that let us let us get paid, ignore like you know the three to six months pipeline? Of course, we'll have a runway like any startup does, so to speak. Um, but um, but how can we do our work and place bets that might pay off in three to eight years? And that of course means being funded. It also means giving up some of those returns. So for me, venture or that bracket is the path for me. But I think there are lots of other models. Um, I, I hosted a, a workshop at Soda recently, Society of Digital Agencies, and, and I challenged a bunch of agency owners to come up with new models. And the only restriction they had was you couldn't be paid for time. So I had to go around for this hour and a half, keep reminding people, whatever you're thinking of, ditch that, ditch that, ditch that. And one of the most interesting models one group came up with was to build a, uh, an agency of senior staff um, who would basically work with a brand. Um, so you'd, build, you'd set up a special purpose vehicle the, agent, the brand would give you, let's say, they'd buy 25% of it, and you'd go in with a very senior team, and you'd build the entire in-house capability. You'd help recruit, you'd help do the first few projects, and help them get up to speed. After a certain period of time, 18 months or whatever it was, the, agency, the, the brand would pay whatever, 7.5, buy the other 75% out. Uh, they have a full in-house capability, and that team would dissolve and, and go on to the next project. I thought that was fascinating, because it's acknowledging what's happening in the market, it, it harnesses the experience that, that, that leaders in the field have, and it, it also defines a new model where it's not about being paid for time. So I think there are lots of options. And mm -hmm. you know, my, my doom and gloom is actually, in a way, it, it, I embrace it because, because I think we should embrace new models of doing things. So I think there are an infinite array of options as long as we're, we're, we're you know, clever about doing that. Um, and you know, I'd love to go into the factory model, the creative capital studio model, you know, a little bit later on in that context. Um, but for the next generation, speaking about that, you know, going back to the theme of what does this giant consolidation mean for design per se? What does the 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 commoditization and and the um, the the kind of decline in the health of the ecosystem mean for the next generation of emerging talent? I, for me, it means that. The, which, by the way, has lots of other options now. It's quite easy to go and work for them if you're, if you're relatively capable. You've got to be talented, of course, be, uh, end up at Google, Facebook, and uh, any of the kind of usual suspects. So it's not that they're trapped in the industry. Um, I, think, I think in that context, the responsibility is to, to provide you know, purpose for them, like healthy working environments, which is another major topic and in terms of good work-life balance. Um, and, and I think... The phrase I like to use in, in this environment, you're either a revolutionary or you're not. Um, and um, while I was writing uh, the kind of state of the digital nation 2020, I went to Tom Stopper play Travesties, and then the last line of the play was, you're either a revolutionary or not. And it, that so clearly defined it for me, which was like, in this climate, you're on one side or the other. And I think the people who aren't revolutionary, sadly, are people of you and my generation who are you know, in larger shops, and they've got a mortgage, and they've got kids, probably like you and I. And you know what? Why should they bother retraining? They're on the home stretch. They're in control. They've got like five, ten years left in the game, so to speak. They have no incentive to, to change things up, even though the whole, the whole ship's going, the super tanker's going off, off a cliff. So I think we need to get them out of the way. And I think the next generation needs to have more control and more influence. And we need to acknowledge their their uh, potential and their power. Because, if, because I think the thing holding the industry back has been pretending everything is okay. The emperor is not stark bollock naked, which, which he has been for, I, I know, eight years, five years. So I, th I think we just need to start calling it out. And the next generation needs to be bold about doing that. And you know what? They can just bugger off. They've got so many options now. So the, the delusion, you know, it, it, it's, it's self-perpetuating, pretending everything's okay when it clearly isn't. And having people in, in 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 control who who are more invested in the status quo, from a personal and professional context, is pointing the whole thing in one direction. So, for me, it's be revolutionary. And I think I think agencies, if you want to call it, they need to they need to they need to be themselves. And you know, big big shops like huge and, and RGAs have got people who've been there for a decade or longer. 
you really got to question what, you know, what those people's motivations are. And you know, it's the same thing at Nike. They got lots of people who've been there a very long time who, who are invested in things staying the same. And I think just like any, uh, like any large old organization, uh, that, that's, that prevents you kind of renewing yourself and you end up being kodak Coming back to us two, yep. uh, your beginning of your, or your founding first first business, was us two your no, first no, I, business? No, I, I joined like a, a year and a bit in. Okay. Uh, no, I, I, I'd funny enough never worked for anyone before I worked for us two, and then within a year and a bit I became an owner at us two. Yeah. Um, no, I, I, I ran lots of businesses terribly before us two. Maybe some stories shared of running businesses terribly? Well, I think, I was thinking about it recently, and, I, I, any, any highlights in your failures? Any highlights? Well, look, I spent my 20s <laughs> being dumb, which was really fun. I, I went to Japan for six years. I, I had nightclubs, a restaurant. Uh, I, I was a webmaster, which is probably the core, core most useful thing. Back, I mean, who's, who speaks as if they're a webmaster? But I used to have a bunch of websites I'd run and make money from, and it was all passive income. And it, it, from a very early age... Well, so in my like, early 20s, I was earning a, a very decent salary entirely as passive revenue, which meant in my time I could do whatever I wanted. So I spent that time being dumb, doing all the shit you do in a midlife crisis, like thinking it's good to have a bar or a restaurant <laughs> or a nightclub. Uh, and I got that out of the way early. Um, and in that time, I also had a studio um, called Digital White. And I learned a lot from that about team dynamics, about, um, you know, about selling digital and creative to people but um but I, I, a lot of those lessons funny enough when i when i when i borrowed a desk at us too initially when i first stepped into the place um all my confidence about ways of doing things wasn't because i'd done them successfully in the past it was from a series of car crashes i'd been involved in in the past and knowing that well, we're not going that way that that doesn't work <laughs> so it's definitely this way this way um, doesn't end well. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think with anything, like learning from mistakes is the most valuable, valuable thing. Yeah. And any particular mistakes that you've learned a decent lesson that you'd be happy to share? Yeah, I mean, if, if you kind of fast forward, like, you know, I came to the US six, six years ago. Um, and I'm definitely, as I was saying before, I'm definitely not the same person I was six or seven years ago, even five or four years ago. And I was reflecting recently, unless you're... Unless you're not, unless you don't literally shudder with embarrassment and shame at, at who you were a number of years ago, then I don't think you've grown at all. And there's lots of examples of, of iterations of me which I now look back on and with a, with like I, I have a physiological reaction to, <laughs> for sure. Um, Perhaps one example. Well, I mean, look, when I when I started, like my entire route at us two was was a bit of a. You know, I was very aggressive in terms of what I wanted, what I thought was the opportunity, and I was extremely objective-oriented. Um, about the growth of the company? Yeah, about, the about, growth, about, about, about going in a certain direction and the growth of the company. Yeah. And, and, and that uh, objective orientation, uh, it can be quite unhealthy because, and I, I think I, I learned a good framework for it recently, but I'd only, it, it only, only began to learn about that, about myself through coaching, which we had a lot of at us too. And I work with uh, um, a coach called Max, from, formerly from Chaos Pilots, which is a, an amazing kind of a Danish um, personal development and, and business school. And I had it kind of reflected back to me that, that um, ultimately I didn't care about people, which, which was uh, in one of the exercises we did with the us, my fellow us two owners. It was put most succinctly by one of the owners. And initially, when I got that feedback, which was all done in a very thoughtfully facilitate environment. You know, we're not trying to hurt each other. We're trying to learn from each other. And we designed rules of engagement around this process. Um, I took that away that day and I spoke to my coach, Max, and I said, well, Max, this is, this is a problem. If people think I don't care about people, then that's a problem. And of course, you can see by the way I phrased that, um, I wasn't really getting the point. If people think I don't care about people. <laughs> and um, so I kind of asked him for an epiphany. Uh, and you don't, really, you don't really ask for epiphanies either. You know, there's a lot of ignorance in there. So Max was great. He kind of, in a kind of semi-Yoda-esque fashion, said, look, the purest form of relationship you'll ever have is with your family, or with your kids, actually, he said. And he, he then built this, you know, little breadcrumb trail in my mind. You know, he didn't tell me, you, you can't ask for an epiphany, you can't ask for clarity, but 
um, he, like any good coach, they kind of provided a breadcrumb trail for your own brain to work it out. So the next day in the next series of sessions with the other us two owners, I, the coin dropped and I, I'd realized um, that I'd compromised the quality of, of my relationship with my family uh, as much as I had uh, with people at us too, in, with an objective in mind for them. So it wasn't, you know, I, was, yeah, I was just thought whatever we were doing was going to be good for us therefore justified the justified the externalities so to speak and um when max helped me connect the two that's pretty confronting i kind of called a timeout went into a stairwell and burst out into tears sobbing for like a good 15 minutes because i realized you know maybe it, maybe you can justify the externality of like hurting people at work so to speak because you kind of discount their opinion or especially if they're in the way, you're like, well, look, we're going this way. This is the whole point of this. And it's actually for your good. So I'm kind of going to barge you out the way or ignore you or bully you even. You could, you could, it was kind of put back to me recently by someone. Uh, and that's not okay at all, of course. But you can... Under, appreciating you've done that to your family is pretty, pretty heavy to accept in yourself. So Max helped me realize that about myself, that I had compromised that. And that's when I kind of had a kind of breakdown and and the epiphany I asked for he's very good and and realized that like there's no way I can be okay with that and and that began a lot began a long process of coaching um and and it, it's and which has been pretty pretty important to me for for years now in terms of personal development and personal learning and it still gives to me you know a number of months ago it kind of came back to me at how uh, I still have a, of course, I have a lot to learn. That shift from a very overconfident, A-type, fixed mindset more towards a growth mindset who realizes that there's a lot more to learn, that there's a lot more listening to do, is, is, is important uh, to me. But in, in, that, in that process, yeah, I just spoke to my wife, you know, in, in, at the weekend, said, look, I've done this. He said, I know you've done this. I was going to talk to you about it, like proper talk to you. And I apologized, and I began this long process. And... and it recently has made me think about power structures. There was a great podcast I, um, uh, from Future Thinkers. It was Richard Schatzenberger talking about existential risk. And he was talking about power structures that kind of, kind of in essence, reward um, in a typical company or environment. That, you know, he called it low-grade low psychopathy is rewarded because as long as you can justify externalities, which is basically accept that you're going to hurt people or, you know, if you're talking in industry, we'll... we'll, we'll We'll mine this. We'll mine this virgin landscape to make batteries and pump lots of pollution into the environment because we're making batteries. And it's the same thing, in essence, in terms of your relationships at work or with anyone. Uh, as long as you can do that, it means you can be effective and you can get stuff done. And the more people who get stuff done tend to tend to, in typical company structures, tend to climb. So what, in a weird way, happens is that the power structure of most companies reinforces low-grade psychopathy. So me as an extremely objective-oriented person who justified externalities would be willing to hurt people because in their interests, I'm trying to get us to a better place. Um, they do well. And you know what? They, they fucking shouldn't because it's pretty awful. And, and for me, I'm putting a lot of thought into as I define my new studio and building the new studio, that I don't go down that route again. Certainly, I've tried to make amends from my, my perspective, not just with, with the people who are affected, but also making sure that I look to kind of foster a more equal kind of playing field. Um, so, yeah, I mean, look, the last six years has been mind-blowing. I think coaching and personal development is key. It's one of the offerings that I think is important to startups as well. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, I'm very different to who I was, and uh, I'm still maybe acknowledging and cleaning up some of the mess and, and whether it's through penance or, you know, directly speaking to some people or just trying to build better things for other people. Yeah, deep, a deep journey of, of, of uh, learning coming to the U.S. I mean, the U.S. in itself is a country that puts nearly everything in high contrast. So I've learned a lot just coming, living in this culture because it's just a culture of extremes. And that epiphany was that the start of your moving out or exiting of us two and uh or was that you know how does that in in your timeline sort of align with the the, the epiphany or the beginning of like developing <laughs> self-awareness um was earlier on that was a number of years ago 
Um, I definitely embraced it and em embraced the concept of vulnerability. And, and was that related to your move to the US? No, it, it, it totally independent. No, it, we. I think we only, you know, as, as a studio, us two became more heavily involved in coaching or appreciative of coaching right across the board, like a, few, a year or two into my US journey. Um, and there were there were coaches in all the studios. Um, so, but definitely, uh, definitely was probably part of part of accelerating any process. Um, but it, it was it was years in. I definitely. You know, what I realized was coming to the US, the person you want to send to a market like this is someone who's got that, uh, who's got the ability to um, maybe inspire people who, who to come and join them, clients to come and work with them, people to leave a, like a functioning existing studio to join your, you know, your company's idea. Um, but what happens is once you start to hit a community of the, of the company you've built of 20, 30, 40, the Alexander the Great routine doesn't really serve the needs of the studio. Actually, you need far more pastoral skills. So now I'm far more self-aware of, of the need for a personal development framework because the needs of your company or your studio will evolve over time. Um, and it's, you know, if you look at the startup journey, it's why a lot of startups, the CEOs, founders, usually end up getting pushed out of the startup within a number of years because they haven't been able to develop uh, alongside the needs of the startup. They haven't scaled themselves alongside that, alongside the startup. There's very few Mark Zuckerbergs who can do it, you know, right the way through. And coaching, which I completely agree is mm. essential, as is mentorship, as is that support network, yeah. whichever analogy you want to use. But, I mean, specifically with us too, I mean, how did that... How did that start? There was a realization that was needed for coaching. There was um, an introduction to certain key people. There was key topics that the founders wanted to cover. This was the staff was requesting it. Yeah. I mean, where what was where it, did that start? Well, and, it, and then how did it come? How did it? Yeah. Come to life. I, th I think it came from a, a semi chance meeting of Max Samuels, who's who's, who's a coach. Um, with the head of, and one of the owners and heads of the Swedish studio in Malmö. Um, and that began the journey of, of coaching. We, you know, and we saw it was good stuff and valuable. I know, I'm pretty confident I was pointed at as, you know, by the, you know, by the uh, ownership as in need of coaching. Um, so I think it's interesting that like, coaching as a tool you know, for me, I think it can only be truly effective if it's fully embraced right through the organization from top to bottom and wholly embraced. I think some people might see it as a tool that we'll get a coach and we'll point that coach at person X and person X will become less of a problem or they'll evolve and that will, they'll achieve their potential. I think that's an interesting divide for me of whether a, 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 the company sees it as a tool or sees it as a, it's just, just a way of being. I certainly embraced the I embraced the way of being side of it, um, but and it, it began there with Max, and then then over time a series of coaches and all the studios were recruited, and it kind of was woven through. Now it's interesting because because if if you're working in product, you're probably working agile or lean, which means you build in retrospectives. There's a lot of natural process there about feedback and, and everything else, which which can be part of a healthy routine of any decent company actually. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't have to be as specific as, as coaching. Uh, so it's per se, because you can build a lot of the healthy routines that take the air out of situations uh, in. Um, but, you know, it, it, you know it, grew, it grew across the whole studio. Interesting. And coming to Factory, yeah. the new venture, where, and we've covered it uh, briefly already, but what are you looking to achieve with it? Is there a, a single destination, a single goal? a single thing that you're looking to to change i think I like, the thesis is and that, I, yeah sorry to interrupt no no and this is you know on a personal level from yeah. hearing your previous experiences but also being vocal as part of the industry yeah you know the impact that you're looking to achieve look a, a, a i want to build a great healthy studio i want to build a model that that you know for me um helps build you know the potential for significant wealth and when i say wealth like money is probably number three or four on the list it, wealth for me is about health it's about the experiences you're having the kind of work you're able to do um 
and the quality of that work, but also I think the outcome of that should be significant wealth, potential. Um, so it's about that, which definitely doesn't feel to me in the typical agency structure is possible and, and, and unless you just sell your agency. Um, so I, I want to demonstrate a path for the creative class to show that it is possible for us to define new models, get those models funded you know, by, by seasoned investors that allow us to do the kind of work we do, allow us to get paid along the way, but allow us the, the potential for significant returns. And I, th I think, so there's a dual mission. A, I want to I wanna have a you know, studio where I'm around my tribe um, and I can contribute to that tribe. Um, Secondly, I, 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 I believe, and that's why I'm excited about all this chaos in the industry, that, that it's completely feasible that we do define these new models. And I don't have like a Moses complex, but it would be great. I'd love to have contributed in some way to, to, to demonstrating we can do this. So the whole, the whole factory project is all open source. So I've already, in the state of the Digital Nation 2020, the most recent one, written the whole blueprint for the creative capital studio model, which is an abstraction of the factory model. Mm of how it works, uh, how, the thesis of how it works, who you work with, what kind of engagements, what duration, how it could be funded. As I go through each stage of the journey of learning, because I, I have the privilege of a lot of access. I was just in, I was just in, I was just in San Francisco and Silicon Valley. I, you know, I've got I'm friends with heads of design at you know, some of the world's biggest tech companies. And these are people who've been on journeys of starting startups, selling their startups to, uh, to Facebook and, and then leaving that startup. They've been through every variation of the journey and the startup journey. Um, and I, I, I was in Norway. I got invited to, some, to a kind of an amazing weekend away with North Zone, which is a European VC, with, with a bunch of other VCs, I kind of, a bunch of successful people and me, um, uh, which, is <laughs> way, which, is, which is the way I like to put it. And, and then, and, you know, in New York, I, I know a lot of people. So basically, I have all this access, and, and I want to... I want to take all those insights and share them with as many people as possible because I think the only way we're going to get to a better place in the creative class is through open sourcing and sharing. No more like playing the cards close to our chest. Our studio is always great at sharing the pixel of perfect precision, how you design for UI, all the stuff we learned. And I think, I think it's important. If we're going to get to a better place, then we should have a kind of collective consciousness of sharing. And open source is the way to do that. So I did stage one, gave out the blueprint. I've now toured the blueprint. Uh, of the creative capital studio model with lots of different people, like creatives, VCs, startups. And I've got a lot of insights, which is my next stage of compressing all of those uh, and giving them out, you know. And then I'll choose one of the, there are five paths in this model. And, you know, any, I'm happy if anyone does it, you know, comes out ahead or takes it, breaks it, steals it, because I think it's so important we get to a better place. Um, so the things I want to do, to do are do great work with, you know, fantastic early stage technology companies, in really critical areas to help them scale, which is design, which, uh, which, is, which is engineering, it's process, that's the product bucket. Uh, the, the other bucket is growth, which is, it is, is coaching and personal development, it's organizational design, it's recruitment, um, it's putting systems in place to help them scale, uh, and it's growth, which is paid viral and sticky marketing. That's the stack of factory. Um, I think in this space, you, anyone can choose their stack, what's their offering to work with startups, and you then negotiate you know, equity in return for it. Um, but secondly, I want to demonstrate, because I truly believe it's such an exciting time to define new models, and there's a lot of money out there. Mm. You know, if the SoftBank Vision Fund is, I think it's 100 billion. It's, it, 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 there's capital absolutely everywhere. Like in the US, seed rounds are based on valuations of $10 million. Like there's, the, the, the market is awash with capital. We in the creative class should be able to define models uh, uh, that attract investment. So I'd love to be able to demonstrate that. I'd love to open source as much as possible. I'd love it if people stole the idea and iterated on it. Um, so yeah, it's, it's dual. It's like a bit of a mission for like, there's got to be a better way and I'm gonna help define, define one of these new paths. And then, there's a, and then the other one is just building a great studio that you know, allows me to enjoy the journey but has the potential for kind of significant upside. Um, and yeah, I was just at the David Bowie exhibit um, in, uh, in Brooklyn. And um, I thought it was really, it was really interesting there that his quote, you know, I tried to work out like, I think people told me I got a bit of an ego. My ego is less bad since coaching, but I love the way he put it. So he said, uh, it was one of the recordings there. I want to be well known. Um, I wanted to be well known. I wanted to be seen as the instigator of new ideas. I wanted to turn people into new ideas and perspectives. And I guess that's kind of a bit of my mission. 
of, of like, there's got to be a better way. I want to help demonstrate it. I've got a lot of privilege and access that will help me do that. I'm going to share as much of, of, of my learnings as possible along the way. And, and hopefully, this will just be one of many paths that the creative class can forge over the next five years to escape, you know, basically a shit show you don't really want to be involved in. Who would want to work at a large agency, like in a big shootout between Accenture and McKinsey and, and whilst you watch WPP implode, it, why would you want to be part of that, you know? Be more Bowie. Yeah, be Bowie, yeah. Two final questions, Jules. Yep. Um, on your journey so far and your story of growth, is there an overarching tip, recommendation, piece of advice? that you would share or for someone who's just starting out of their journey? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one is don't be afraid to reach out to people. Um, even, even, you know, busy, uh, inverted commas, successful people. Just be bold and go and ask them. Ask for a coffee or be specific when you ask, but don't hesitate in reaching out to people because people are willing to, willing to help. I, I receive so much help along my journey, and I'm, I'm trying to, in turn, kind of pay that forwards by meeting people who are at a different stage. In terms of mentoring and being and being mentored, it doesn't have to be as formal as mentoring. You know, it can be just be learning. You know, someone's got a decade of experience or two decades. They know an industry inside out or a problem you're trying to solve inside out. They can help you um, immeasurably in the space of 45 minutes. So just don't be afraid to grab them. And I, you know, speaking to that, it, it, that's something that men are more comfortable doing. Uh, and I, th I think we all, I think we need to encourage the, the fact that everyone should be able to do that. Mm. Um, so, you know, overcome whatever, whatever emotion is in the way. And, and it doesn't matter what stage you're at, just reach out to people. And how can people find you? Me, uh, on Twitter at EasyJules, E-Z-Y, I've gone American. Easy. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, easy, yeah, easy, easy Y. Well, in English, it's easy Y J, J U L E S, or in American, it's E E. In English, E E Z Y, J U L E S. Uh, so, Easy Jewels on Twitter and Factory is F K T R Y dot com. And if you just type in "State of the Digital Nation" into Google, you'll 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 have a kind of few tastes of 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 some of the I guess thinking, and the mind share. Final one, uh, bonus question. Yep. Um, Anybody you've read, seen, other than Bowie, um, that you'd like to hear on the podcast? Uh, yeah, because I want to speak to him. Uh, and I reached out to him. Talking about reaching out to people, I reached out to Hartmut Esslinger, who's the founder of Frog, who was a big inspiration to me in terms of his attitude towards lack of pretension around design and, and, and also the boldness to, 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 to charge your worth. Uh, and, uh, and he's definitely someone you should have on there because he, he built Frog... Uh, out at a time where the industry was pretty, you know, in, in, a, in a bit of a state. And, and I think he's also helped build some pretty iconic, design for some pretty iconic products and experiences. So I'd go for him. And I I'm, I'm can't wait to meet him because I, I, I reached out to him just in the vein of reaching out to people. And he responded almost instantly. And we're going to catch up soon. Because I think, I think what we need right now are people who acknowledge that the emperor's naked and don't want to play this kind of game of the court and would just, would just speak honestly about, about the state of the nation and, and what opportunities there are. Great. Cool. Jules, thanks so much. Fascinating chat. And, yeah, good luck with the new, with the new, um, new company. Awesome. Pleasure. Thanks, man. Cheers.